TB community, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Each week, we like to bring you insight from travel authors, adventurers, conservationists, digital nomads, tour guides, and some of our very own personal travel experiences. Joining me today is the very convivial Robert Domena. So our guest today is David Seminara. He is a travel author. He is the author of several travel books. Today, we mostly talk about his book, Mad Travelers, a tale of wanderlust, greed, and the quest to reach the ends of the earth. This book is pretty awesome. I purchased it and I'm looking forward to reading it. It's essentially a deep exploration of wanderlust focused around the true story of this guy, William Bakeland. He is a young British man who essentially conned tons of the world's most traveled traveled people. He helped them reach some of the most remote places on the planet, but there is an interesting backstory and it's actually sort of the meat and potatoes of this discussion today. So uh, great conversation. Dave was an awesome guy and we really hope you enjoy this one. Before we get into it, our travel tip of the week is to learn at least one unusual phrase in the language that you're going to visit. Uh, most people will learn hello, uh, where's the bathroom, goodbye, thank you, please. But learning one unusual phrase will, I think, open up the door of opportunity for you to have a more insightful conversation, a better travel experience. You never know where it may lead. And I think it will, at a minimum, please the people that you're there visiting. So Yeah, think of it this yeah. way. So Amanda, for Christmas last year, got an entire book, a dictionary of idioms for the English language that... When you put the words together, they don't mean anything what they actually mean. Like squeaky wheel gets the oil. Person who talks the loudest or complains the most will eventually get what they want. Or if they are persistent, they'll get what they want. Right? Yeah. So yeah. think of it as figuring out idioms in the language that you're learning and people will be very surprised and it'll, I think it'll help your trip. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, before we get into the podcast, check out some of the cool things that we offer. How do you organize and plan your trip? So if you like to keep your trip organized like we do, you can use the travel journal and planner that we developed for our very own personal travel experiences. This will allow you to record things like the dates, the budget, the top destinations, the currency exchange rate, the time difference. It has a fillable calendar and it provides you the ability to write out your entire itinerary by the hour. In addition to that, it has a place to store reservation information, a packing list, a to-do list. And then at the very back, it offers you space to journal about your trip. You can find this travel journal planner on our products page. And once you download it, you have it forever and you can reprint and refill it out for every trip you have moving forward. Now, if you do decide to purchase this, we encourage you to reach out to us with any tips to make it better. To help compile all of your info for the journal slash planner, we turned ourselves into cartoons to create a five-part video course that provides a step-by-step -step process to create the ultimate itinerary, including number one, navigation, number two, booking airfare, number three, blogs, research, and reviews, number four, itinerary building, and number five, safety, cultural norms, and thoughtful travel. The goal of this video tutorial is so that you can become your own personal travel agent and learn how to be planned efficient trips now and forever, all the while saving you money to splurge on a nice meal or first class seat for your next adventure. Yeah. And now, so if you still think that planning your trip is a little bit too much, or you just don't have time to sit down and actually do it, I can personally plan your trip for you using all the information that we just mentioned. If you're interested in this, please send me an email at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com or visit our service pages on our website, and we can meet over Zoom to discuss the details of your trip. You want to contribute to the podcast? If you work in the travel industry, you can join us for a travel roundtable discussion by submitting your information through the TAT form on our website. 
You can also send us a travel article via direct message or at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com for the monthly Travel Bites episode. Support us by wearing us. Go to redbubble.com to find awesome gear and merchandise of the Traveler's Blueprint. Some of the cost comes directly to us to help support the podcast. We definitely recommend the hoodie and the hat and maybe a sticker or a travel mug. Whether you purchase a product from us or just want to learn about travel alongside us as we interview our guests, know that we greatly value your support as a listener of the show. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Hey, welcome to the Travelers Blueprint Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're really excited to have you today. Uh, what caught our eye was this book that you wrote. Uh, it's called Mad Travelers, A Tale of Wanderlust, Greed, and the Quest to Reach the Ends of the Earth. Uh, so I added it to my reading list. I haven't had a chance to read it before you came on, unfortunately, but I am really curious to hear from you what this book is about because uh, you're, you're following the, you know what? You're following well. You're following the the path of a guy named William Bakeland, who you wrote is a young Brit who conned many of the world's most traveled people as they sought to reach the planet's most remote and off limit places. Can you just break that down a little bit further for us? What uh, what's your book about, and what are we going to talk about today? Yeah, in a word, the book is about wanderlust. You know, I was surprised uh, several years ago when I started this project. I wanted to better understand wanderlust because it's been the driving sort of force in my life, which has propelled me across many different U.S. states and foreign countries. <laughs> and so several years ago, I actually wanted to read a book about wanderlust, sort of explaining wanderlust, and was surprised that there was, <laughs> there was none. So over a period of several years, I started doing research on wanderlust. And um, as this happened, I thought my, my first idea was, okay, if I really want to study wanderlust, who do I have to get to know an interview? The world's most traveled people, right? So what I wanted was I wanted to find people whose wanderlust was even stronger and more fierce than me, people who are more addicted, more, more compulsive travelers than me, people who are bigger mad travelers than me. And so I started interviewing some of the world's most traveled people, and I really got to know these guys. Most of them are men um, over a period of, let's say, five or six years. And during this time period, um, I came to know William Bakeland, at least the person who I thought was William Bakeland. And as it turned out, the person who we thought was one of the world's most traveled people, the person we thought who was a 21-year-old aristocratic billionaire with a huge trust fund, uh, was not that sort of person at all. In fact, he was a working class uh, gentleman from a, uh, from a rather humble background um, who had taken a, taken a lot of people on some very extravagant trips but had also canceled many trips too and was in arrears of almost a million dollars to a number of people and who had really trusted him. And I thought when I, when I came across the story of William, who also conned me too, because I thought William was one of the gang. I thought he was one of the world's most traveled people. And I was seeking to interview him and I was corresponding with him six or seven years before he, he was exposed. Um, he conned me too. And when I realized as this scandal sort of unfurled, I realized that this was sort of the central thread I wanted for my book about wanderlust. I wanted a central story um, about a person or a group of people um, who were so infected by wanderlust that, at least on William's end, they were willing to do some, maybe some slightly something, you know, quite shady or possibly illegal in order to fund their own wanderlust, which is William's case, I think. And as far as the travelers go, they were they were so 
their desire and their hunger to explore was so intense that they were willing to trust this young man and to wire him in some cases tens or even more than $100,000 in order to go on these extravagant, supposedly groundbreaking trips that he was going to take them on. So um, in a sense, the book is really about wanderlust. So if you've ever wondered you know, if you have wanderlust or if you have a spouse who has it or a relative and you're really seeking to sort of understand this compulsion, this desire to explore, um, that's what this book is about. I think your word choices are very interesting because you have you use compulsion, uh, infected, and it, it really seems like it's something almost biological. And I think it is. It's something. It's something mental, something that you really unless you understand what it is, you can't really control it. You just want and almost need to do it. Right. No, I do use that phrase. The only phrase I never use, which is quite common is the travel bug. I never mm. refer to it. I never refer to it as a bug because to me, a bug implies something very minor. Like a bug is something that goes around and you're, you're not feeling well for a day or two as a result of a bug and it passes. I don't think bug is an accurate way to really describe at least what I have and what many of the other extreme travelers have. What we have is much more uh, serious. I would call it more of an affliction mm -hmm. than a bug because it is a very powerful desire. And when you, are, when you have that desire, it can really take over your life and it can direct the course of your life, I think. So Dave, I, I, I love this premise and it feels like there are layers now to your book. What started off as a, an interest in, in Wanderlust in general, you now have this layer of this guy who is conning people by, you know, preying on people's Wanderlust. And then the Wanderlust of these travelers is sort of, I guess they're, they're fogged, right? The, 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 the desire to travel is so significant for them that they're willing to put aside, I guess, any red flags. And I guess that just just solidifies how strong that pull is, that urge is. Yeah. So let me first explain for the listeners, give them a little introduction of this community of extreme travelers, because then sure. I think Williams Con will make a lot more sense. Um, of course, you're going to read a lot more about this in the book, but let me just introduce you to it. Essentially, a lot of people don't realize that travel can be sort of a competitive endeavor in that there are travel clubs out there. Um, there's three main ones. There's probably many of them, but there's really three main ones. One of them is called Nomad Mania. Another one is called Most Traveled People, and the third is called the Traveler Century Club, where travelers can sort of measure their travels against each other. And Traveler Century Club does not have rankings, but they do have tiers, depending upon how many of their territories you visited. But Nomad Mania and Most Traveled People have rankings. So you can, based upon the number of countries and territories and islands and such that you visited, you can say, okay, well, I'm ranked number 53 in the world, or I'm ranked number six in Liechtenstein, or I'm, you know, if I'm Irish, I could be number one in Ireland or whatever. And so once you get to the very, very top or near the top of these rankings, okay, these are people who have been to every country in the world, right? So they've all been to every country, but they're also seeking to complete these other much more difficult explorations to very difficult to reach islands, uh, dangerous places that are off limits, um, and also provinces and territories. So for example, it's not enough to just visit Russia, for example, right? You want to visit all 83 oblasts of Russia, just like it's not enough to just go to New York City. You need to visit all 50 states in the United States and so on. And these are how these travel clubs essentially, how you're able to measure yourself against other travelers, okay? So this is a brief introduction of this world. 
William Bakelin, when he was 18 or 19 years old, started to get interested in this. And he, he set up his own profile on one of these websites, right? And he saw these guys who were at the very top, let's say the top 10, top 20, top 30 people in the world. Almost every single one of them is a man. There's a couple of women up there, but very few. It's mostly a male endeavor at the very top of this group, at least. And um, he started to make the acquaintance of all of these people. He wanted to be like them. I, I feel like, at least in the beginning, he aspired to be one of the world's top travelers, but he did not have the money to do so because he grew up in a very humble circumstance. He grew up in the equivalent of public housing in England, okay, in Birmingham, in the outskirts of Birmingham, in a place that I went to. As you, when you read the book, you'll find out that I traveled in his footsteps and went to his neighborhood. So I saw how humble it was, okay? So he wanted to enter this community of super elite travelers. He wanted to be one of the top people. And what he did was he actually went on some of the trips that these guys were going on to these very remote and extravagant places. Uh, most notably, a place called Bouvet Island, which I'm guessing probably many listeners have never heard of. But Bouvet Island is an uninhabited island in the South Atlantic Ocean. It is considered the world's most remote island. Okay. And it's spectacularly difficult to reach. And so William went on this 30-day-long cruise, which was endeavoring to land on Bouvet Island. However, the seas were so rough that they were not able to land. Okay. And so what happened was uh, you do not get to count a place as a territory unless you step foot on it. So simply seeing an island from a boat is not enough. You could not count it. Right. So William told these travelers on the ship, uh, this is back in, I believe it was 2015. I will get us back here on my own ship. We will charter our own ship and we will not be at the mercy of this cruise company. So we can sit and wait until the seas are calm enough that we'll all land. And this piqued the interest of many of these top travelers. And they were fascinated by this young man because they thought that he was based upon some gossip in the community. They felt that he was a billionaire. He was an heir to this great plastics fortune, fortune, right? And so they didn't think he was a guy who was trying to bring them to Bouvet Island to make money. They thought he was this extravagantly wealthy 21-year-old billionaire who just wanted to go there too. And this is sort of how the saga began. Wow. So, uh, does that, does this, that make sense? That was a very it long does. Oh, It does. Absolutely. I was, yeah. I was, so this, uh, this sounds very similar to the Anna Sorkinen story. Yes. And so William uh, became a rock star in this community of extreme travel because he successfully took people, took very top travelers to places that they never thought they would be able to get to ever. Places that are essentially almost off the map. Places like, for example, I'm going to name drop another obscure island, Marion Island, which is like a six-day boat ride south of Cape Town, South Africa, <laughs> essentially in the middle of nowhere. And oh, he found he was finding ingenious ways to get these people to places they thought were inaccessible, completely inaccessible. So he was he was the uh, rock star of extreme travel, and he. He was, I think, as one traveler put it, literally expanding the map, expanding the horizons. And so there was a tremendous amount of trust in him. He was looked up to, even though these men were decades older than him. Uh, many of them really looked, looked up to him because he was seen as a genius. He was considered to be brilliant. His knowledge of geography and travel was unparalleled. No one, you couldn't stump him. Uh, you could name some obscure island in Micronesia or wherever, and he could tell you all about it. And so he was a remarkable person. So how did he know all of this if he wasn't, was he himself a, like, 
a wanderlust individual like he traveled the world yes and okay. so that is that is really the interesting thing i think i think about william is that you know he is sometimes referred to as a con man or a con artist or things like that but to be honest with you i'm not going to refute the term because he does owe a number of travelers a tremendous amount of money however he is i do not believe a con artist in the classic sense and that he shared their wanderlust deeply this was not an act his interest in the remote and obscure places of the world was not fake this was the one the one thing about him that was very real is that he did share this curiosity about the world and ever since he was a little boy he was studying maps he was studying the globe and even though he had no money he was dreaming of these places and learning about them and he's very well read too and a very intelligent person so i i don't want you to spoil anything in the book because i do want to read it um but you're and so don't answer this if if um it, <laughs> we'll do that but you're referring to him in the past tense is there something that occurred to him that you can talk about without giving too much away he's not dead i'll tell you that much he's very much alive okay. and well okay okay he's, I, i'm not giving anything away he is very much alive and well and in fact i'm still in close contact with him um i hear from him frequently so he is still alive and well the reason why i'm saying william was often is because what i'm referring to is a period of time of let's say three or four year three four five year period of time when he was active in this community when he was actively taking people on these trips so what i mean is that um, at a certain point in 2019 his story came unglued and he's no longer taking anybody anywhere uh, at least that i know of and so what i'm referring to in the past tense is this golden era of extreme travel when okay. william was sort of expanding the map but i'm realizing too that i should go back to one thing that might interest you and your your listeners as well too is that you said before that you know travel sounds like you know this compulsion sounds like it could be almost uh genetic or biological this is one major uh theme also of the book is where i do explore all of these things so the book is not just about william um essentially every other chapter is about the story of william and the travelers and then the other chapters um we look into all of the different factors that influence people and why I, why i might be different than my neighbor or my brother or my father in terms of my level of wanderlust and one of those definitely is genetic and part of the quest that i went on here in the book is I, as i said to understand my own wanderlust and i did get a dna test to test myself for the so-called wanderlust gene so this is another another motivating factor where i started the research and why i wanted to write the book was back in i believe it was 2014 National Geographic magazine did a cover story on the so-called wanderlust gene. And of course after reading this, I really wanted to know if I had this gene because I wanted to understand if I, if my wanderlust was genetic. And so I had a blood test uh from the Mayo Clinic and I did have my own blood tested to see whether I had this gene. And when you read the book, you'll find out whether whether I had the gene or not, but Genetics is one area that we look into in the book as far as wanderlust goes. Some of the other ones are novelty seeking, which is another which is another thing that we all share many of us keen travelers is that we are um all of us are are different on the on the spectrum of novelty. Some of us are afraid of novelty and we we gear towards familiarity and those people are called uh neophobes, meaning they're they're afraid of the new. and then others of us are on the opposite end of the spectrum where we gravitate towards the new and the unfamiliar we feel comfortable with things that are new we are novelty seekers and then there's people who are on the exact opposite they're creatures of habit they want to go on the same vacation every year to the exact same place and they want to go to their favorite restaurant in order to the same same thing off of the menu 
And, uh, and so there's that. And then there's the, sort of the final one too, which is curiosity. And some of us have different levels of curiosity and we have different ways of satisfying that curiosity. So you and I could both be curious people. However, some people can satisfy their curiosity by, for example, going on YouTube and watching a travel video of Sri Lanka or wherever. Another person can read a book about Sri Lanka and satisfy their curiosity. Then there's people like me who have to go there and see it with their own eyes to satisfy their curiosity. So there's all of these are sort of, I'm just giving you a broad outline of these are the different sort of things that we explore here in the book. That's, That's awesome. So much information right now. Um, the, <laughs> I want to, I want to elaborate, or I want to, I want to talk more about this curiosity thing because, so we've had people on the podcast who have gone to extremes uh, with their travels. One in particular is a guy named Ash Dykes who walked across Madagascar and to common people, uh, you know, common travelers, that's just so insane and intense. He also walked across Mongolia. Um, with, with really limited supplies, solo limited supplies and Mongolia, he almost died a few times. And so what did you learn about the, the brains and the curiosity and the urges that these people have like that, that are willing to essentially risk their own lives, literally risk their own lives to just travel, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I delve into curiosity a lot in the book. There's a chapter about it. And I think that probably one of the most interesting things that I learned about curiosity in the book is how curiosity has been viewed differently over time. So I think in our modern era, curiosity is seen as positive, overwhelmingly positive. You really never hear something negative about curiosity. But one thing that I found, which I thought was really interesting in my research is that uh, a long time ago, let's say a century ago, as recently as let's say a century ago or so, curiosity was actually not seen as something positive. And that people thought that curiosity um, was 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 possibly dangerous because they thought that people would lose focus and they thought that you won't be a productive member of society in terms of a reliable person who will go and clock in at the office from nine to five or go to the factory or you know whatever types of jobs people had in this era. Um, curiosity was seen as something that was distracting, basically like a distraction. And so curiosity was seen in some ways as a sin. Also, when you're talking, we go back further into the Middle Ages and such. And so over time, curiosity has come to be seen as something that's overwhelmingly positive. But I think as I found out in my life, too, that curiosity is it can be a double edged sword. And you don't hear that really in the media very often because we think of curiosity as something that's positive. And generally it is positive. However, I find that that sort of hyper curiosity that I have and that other people have. Um, I think that it can can it can also be a, something of a disorder too, and that's another thing that I learned in my research too. Is that many many people who are extreme travelers also have attention deficit disorder (ADHD) and other sort of uh, disorders. And for people like us, I think that um, it, it can be uh, it can be difficult to concentrate when you have this level of hyper curiosity. Because in an age of Google, where we can, where every oh, yeah. thought that pops into your head, suddenly, you know, you can go off on another tangent and, you know, you're trying to focus on your work. And the next thing you know, you have 30 different tabs on your Google Chrome Explorer open <laughs> because you keep looking up different things to satisfy your curiosity. Um, I guess I would say, yeah, that's one thing that I've, that I've learned is that curiosity can be, it's a positive thing, but it has to also be curbed and controlled in a way too. Yeah. yeah Directed. 
to, to me, the opposite, I, I agree with you. Right. And so I've thought about it. Um, I find myself, I think I'm a pretty curious person and the opposite of curious is sort of being content. And sometimes I think I struggle with just being content and then being content is sort of married to like living in the present. And that's something I also really have to focus on doing. I, I really, I'm always thinking of the next thing, what I have to do in the future. And uh, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so, so curiosity though, is what we owe uh, or, or is, is the reason that these people explore the way they do. Um, curious though, is the, um, are the same individuals that kind of were the explorers in the age of exploration, these same wonderless seekers, or were they just directed by, you know, financial gains and kind of for no. the country? No, I'm glad you asked that question too, because aside from the extreme travelers, the modern ones, I do get into a lot of famous explorers in my book, like Captain Cook, for example, is one of my favorites, but um, no, I do get into the motivations of famous explorers over time. And I think that they absolutely were not driven by money. Not at all. Okay. Not at all. And I, I look into cases, for example, like, for example, let's talk about Captain James Cook, because he is such an influential explorer. Um, he was someone who, who he lost his life. I believe he was right around my age. I'm 49 years old in Hawaii, was stabbed to death by natives on the beach. And this exploration, that trip that he was on, that, that final voyage of Captain Cook probably never should have happened because a few years prior to that, he was given a very comfortable job in, in, uh, in England with a very healthy salary. He had several children. I forget how many. His wife was thrilled that he'd finally come home from all of his voyages. He'd been given this comfortable job, comfortable salary, comfortable house. Everything about his life should have been said, all right, time to retire. But he 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 lasted about six months in this job before he was ready to before he was ready to to kill himself. And it's the same thing with Ernest Shackleton. Shackleton's another person who had sort of the same addiction, the same addiction that we all do. And that Shackleton could have could have lived off of his his explorations, just giving giving lectures, writing books, very comfortable lifestyle. He was given jobs, couldn't hold he couldn't hold a job. None of these people could. None of the famous explorers could really hold a job. And the reason for that was, is that they had this burning desire that they had to continue the exploration and uh, they just, they couldn't let it go. So the fame wasn't enough. Reaching fame and notoriety did not satisfy them. Having money did not satisfy them. Having a comfortable job and a comfortable house and the adulation of the public, none of that was satisfactory because they had to keep going. Wow. Yeah, so it, I, this, that uh, lack of feeling satisfied reminds me of the the Hamilton Broadway show, and there's mm -hmm. there's an entire song devoted to Alexander Hamilton's not, and his wife is saying, "Will you ever be satisfied?" And it's like a five minute song, but it seems like these people have existed throughout history and are in present day, and the only satisfaction that they really get is doing that next thing. I mean, we've right. seen it time and time again through many of our guests, like what is, they've already accomplished this incredible feat or this incredible task. And they're already thinking about what is next before they even right. finish that task. That's a good point. And that's, that's another thing that I get into in the book. And I have, um, I have some chapters on this topic as well, too, because travel can be a hamster wheel of pursuit where you're constantly looking, 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 you're searching for things, but 
when you're in one place, then you're just thinking about the next one. And you go to, you know, let's say you go to Uruguay and you think, wow, this is great. But then someone tells you, wait, you haven't been to Paraguay? Paraguay is even better. And the next thing you know, you feel unsatisfied. And then you go to Paraguay and they say, oh, you weren't in Bolivia or if you're in Bolivia, but you didn't go to the region that somebody tells you, oh, my God, you missed that part of Bolivia. <laughs> and it become it can become a constant, you know, wheel of, hamster wheel of pursuit where you don't ever reach that enlightenment or contented feeling where it's like, OK, now I'm satisfied. So happiness is another um subject in the book that I really get into very deeply because the travel industry, which is the world's biggest industry, sells us on the idea that travel is life-changing and travel equals happiness. And of course, for many of us, travel is a very happy and fun thing to do. But the problem becomes where we can only achieve that level of happiness while we are traveling. And then what happens is if you need travel as a drug in order to achieve happiness, then how do you return home from your trip and carry that happiness and contentment that you had on the road? How do you carry that happy feeling back to your ordinary home life? The transition back can be sort of difficult. And so I explored that in the book. And I also, aside from meeting people who are you know, even more stricken with wanderlust than me, I also wanted to meet people who hate travel. And mm -hmm. so I have, I have one, one chapter that's entirely devoted to travel haters, people who absolutely despise travel, because I wanted to understand what to me was this very peculiar species of people that I don't, that I really still don't understand, although I did endeavor to understand them, because I felt like in order to really understand wanderlust, you also have to understand people who hate travel and understand why, why that is. And so I interviewed people who hate travel in the book too, and to try to find out their perspective, even though I don't agree with it. And one of the things that one of the travel haters told me that just stuck with me is I had one woman who told me that happy people are not extreme travelers. They're not compulsive travelers. She said, content people are happy to stay at home because they're happy with their lives and they're content. She, she said, and she contends that people who are very frequent travelers are people who are deeply unhappy or they're unsatisfied with something at home and, I, and that they're seeking something else. And I thought, well, you know, I can't I can't totally refute that. There's probably something to that for many people. If you're completely and totally content, maybe you do just stay at home. I don't know. Well, I think that's I mean, Bob kind of alluded to this earlier. I think the there is a, a great tug of war between being content and being productive or curious and achieving that next thing. And I mean, that's the reason we have the most mindfulness apps and courses than any other time in human history is because we are now in the biggest grappling session of understanding how to be successful and achieve the next thing, but also be content with where we are right now. And right. there is, there's great, I guess, dissonance between those two items and trying to find that harmony of all right, I have direction of where I want to go, but I'm also happy on the path that I am currently. Right. Another, another um, phenomenon that I have a chapter on in the book is the phenomenon and the, the compulsion to escape. And so we're all escape artists to some degree or another, most of us frequent travelers, right? But I think the difference now is in this age of so much information, back in Shackleton's day, he couldn't just at the click of a mouse find out that, oh, it's cheaper. I could be living in Asuncion for one third of the price that I am here. But these days, it's like we have access to so much information. You can go on YouTube or Instagram or whatever. 
there's always someone in some place that you think has it better than you. Wow. I mean, I could be living in, you watch house owners international and you're like, wow. (laughs) You mean if I was in this Island of Indonesia, I could, you know, have a three bedroom apartment for only $400 per month. And a massage there is only $8 for an hour. And we have so much information that the urge to escape and the compulsion to escape is, is just so strong. Yeah. The, the, the old adage, the grass is greener. Yeah. And yeah. we and we know more about the grass all over the world now than, than I, people used to. Yeah, Dave. Dave, I, I mean, I, I had a, like a revelation as you were talking. Um, like, so when you were <laughs> describing uh, going from country to country, right? You're you're in one country, and then you hear about the next one, and you want to move, and it's sort of you you go down the line. I believe that that uh, process is called the hedonic treadmill, and I've only ever heard it referred to in a material way where you have the guy who has the 70 inch screen TV, but then he needs a BMW and then he has the BMW and he needs the Audi. And like he, he finds temporary happiness in these things and then it wears off and he wants the next thing. I can't believe <laughs> that I, all this time um, it, it could, it could have, it has been happening to me with experiences. I'm sort of on a hedonic treadmill of experiences Yes. Um, well, I can't, I, 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 I compare it to, <laughs> I compare it to, I compare it to a drug is that to me, travel is like a drug addiction. It is like any other sort of addiction. I also saw, um, I also consulted addiction counselors in the book too, which you might find some amusement in. Oh, that is. Actually, I went to, I went and sought uh, counseling from an addiction counselor to see if he would take travel addiction seriously. You'll read about that in the book, but travel is, it is akin to a drug in the same way that you might be able to. In the beginning of your travel career, you might be able to achieve a high by a four-day trip to Florence. But then, you know what? Then the four-day trip to Florence is not enough. You need a stronger hit. You Mm -hmm. need a stronger dose. So then you go on a two-week trip. Uh, Okay, we're getting warmer. Maybe the two-week trip satisfies you for a little bit. But then you need a larger dose. You need a month. And then, wait a minute, a comfortable destination doesn't satisfy me anymore. I don't want to go to Italy. Now I want to go someplace more challenging. And it's it it and it it spins and spins and it gets bigger and bigger until your addiction is much more consuming. So it's something you do have to keep an eye on. Yeah, uh, as as my uh, dad would say, the great philosopher Bruce Springsteen <laughs> in his song "The Badlands," he's got a, a lot a few lines of lyrics. It's uh, "Poor man want to be rich, rich man want to be king. King ain't satisfied till he has everything." <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So another thing that I saw uh, reviewing, doing my research on you and your book was that um, you touched up on the dark side of travel. And now, have we already alluded to that? Was that it was that the mental aspect or is there something else uh, that you you define as the dark side? I think I think we've been talking about the dark side of travel in the last 15 minutes or so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And. I, this is this is really mind blowing because again, I always just viewed these experiences as being healthy. Yeah. Well, the, well that's the thing. Is that <laughs> I I, re, I refer to travel as a healthy addiction in my book because okay. compared to uh, compared to other addictions like porn or gambling or sex or drugs and things like this, it is it is healthier than those addictions. You know, however, I mean, it is an addiction nonetheless. I do think that there's you know, like everything, okay. Let's let's give an example of well, just the first thing coming off of my mind is because I haven't had, I haven't had dessert yet, so I'm thinking about ice cream. Is ice cream a good thing? Is ice cream a wonderful thing? Of course it is. 
But, you know, if you're eating three ice cream sundaes per night um, every day, is that a good thing? Eh, not so much. Right. So I think that like everything in a, at a certain level can be healthy and it depends upon how you're pursuing it and what you're getting out of that and what is the opportunity cost. So for some people, listen, you know, a lot of the world's best travelers are single guys who are retired and they've got plenty of money. And you know what? The opportunity cost for their wanderlust is very minimal because they've got the money to do it. They're no longer working. They're not leaving behind any spouse or children. However, people like myself, I am not wealthy. I do have two children. I do have a wife. I have a lot of obligations. And so for someone like myself, travel addiction can be a little dangerous if you don't keep it in, in touch. Because, you know, for me to say to my family, oh, you know what, I know we got bills to pay around here, but God, I really want to go to Sri Lanka this month. I mean, you know what, uh, I'm going to have to take off. And so, you know, for some, so it depends on who you are and what your situation is. So a travel addiction, you can have the, the most nastiest travel addiction in the world. But if you have if no one's relying on you to be at home and you're not, you know, you're not bothering anybody by going off, then just go ahead and indulge yourself as much as you want. Be a junkie, you know, be convulsing on the floor with, with yeah. the travel addiction. Yeah, so, so it obviously comes down to the individual, but is did you come up with a formula sort of for yourself that you could share, or is there a way that you can design uh, a formula to know that you have a healthy yeah. well, travel habit? <laughs> yeah. so I'll tell you, at, 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 at some point in my research, I thought to myself that I tried to convince myself. I read books like, for example, Pico Ayer has a book about the, called The Art of Stillness. And do you guys know who Pete Goyer is? He's a great travel writer. He's quite, a, he's quite an intrepid explorer. He's written books about globalization. He wrote a book about the Dalai Lama. He's written all kinds of great books and he's a super traveler. And so when he wrote a book called The Art of Stillness about finding happiness at home and then not moving, I read that book and I thought, wow, maybe Pico is onto something. So there was a period of time, and I discussed this a bit in the book, where I thought, well, maybe I could sort of, retire from traveling, not, not really totally retire from it, but not be such a mad traveler. And that phase lasted for maybe like six months. And then I realized, now, who am I kidding myself? This is not, this is not happening. And other people might be able to sort of retire this habit and, you know, not do this, but I think travel is part of who I am. It is part of my identity. So I am not going to, I am not going to stop traveling ever as long as I'm able to do so. However, I think just simply being aware of your compulsion and your addiction and just knowing that it's there and that it really is an addiction can kind of help you keep it on the healthy side. So where you're like, okay, when I see myself heading down this path of, oh, I need to plan my next trip. Where's my next fix coming from? Um, there you got to control things. And I'd say the second thing that I do too is even if I can't be traveling all the time, I can at least plan trips further in advance. So what I mean by that is, even if I can't take, let's say, six international trips per year, I can only take two. Well, I could plan them further in advance because I used to tend to be much more of a last minute sort of person. But now if I can, if, as long as I have, I know where my next travel fix is coming from, mm -hmm. even if it's six months or even a year away, a year, well, a year is kind of frightening. But if it's six months away, that's bad. But at least if I, I know that it's there, it's booked and I, I can start working on it, I can start planning it. I, I can feel okay. It's where I really start to get that sort of, you know, the shakes like an alcoholic is when I don't know, I don't know when the next trip is coming. That's when I do not feel comfortable at all. Portion control. 
know exactly how you feel. I can I can relate to you. Like, it, it, I, yeah. As soon as you click book and those air ticket, the, the the flights are booked, it's like you took a hit of a drug. Yep. <laughs> like you got it's it. Fun. Like ah, coming. yes, you know, yeah. You, you, it's like you right. know something is coming. It's like I. I felt, you know, just like a couple of weeks ago, I booked a trip to uh, Brazil, Uruguay, and Argentina for the summer. And it's not coming up till July. And Florida is beautiful at this time of year. The weather's 75 degrees. So it's not like that. It's not that like when you live in a, you know, place where it's 20 below and you just want to get away to escape the weather. The weather here is perfect, but I still needed to have that on the books. And as soon as I booked that ticket, ticket I felt like a, like a deep exhale, like uh, almost like a weight off my shoulders. Like, okay something's coming yeah. i got something wow. i got something to look forward to yeah i oh, I, so I have a list i have a list in my phone uh with the years and then the, the these countries that i'm going to all the way up to like 2026 i think yeah. <laughs> oh, what a, what, i'll get I'll, I'll give listeners one other tip too and I, I don't know if this is i don't know if this is helpful to people or not but i'll give one other tip to listeners too something that i do that i find helps me also is that i make um google maps um, mm-hmm. for lots of lots of different countries that I haven't been to, but I would like to go to. And so when I read about some place or I hear about something and it piques my curiosity, I make a map and then I add to those maps. So if somebody tells me about something, I read about something, I put it on a Google map. So then to me, it becomes sort of more tangible. Mm-hmm. So it's like when then when I'm ready to go to the country, like for example, like with Brazil, um, this summer, I already have a Google map that I started working on for Brazil like two years ago. So I can go back to that map and click on things and be like, oh, okay. So it, it starts to become sort of more tangible too. You can really start, I guess it's like travel porn, right? You can start fantasizing about a place before you even get there or have the ticket booked. And, and maps, if you're a map person and I am a map person, maps are a way, maps are good travel porn. They're a good way to start fantasizing about places. I, I love that. I love that. I'm, I'm absolutely going to keep going so to do that. My I, wife and I did that uh, about five years ago. Um, I actually just pulled up our map and we've got probably 30 or 40 countries and specific places in there that we just one evening over dinner, we just started adding places to our Google My Maps and it's it's everywhere. And I think it's time we actually revisit and cross some of them off the list and add to it. Yeah. Oh, and planning, I- is, I was, planning is sort of like the buzz that you get before you take the full hit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it, and, and at least for me, like planning is almost 25% of what I enjoy. Like I really like researching and learning about the culture and knowing what I'm going to get yeah. myself into. And then when I'm there and it all just rushes to you and you already have sort of a foundation of information to work with, um, it really just kind of brings the whole thing together. So yeah, I think planning for me is probably 25% at least like of what I yeah. enjoy about the overall experience. I want to give two plugs here that will, will be relevant yeah. to this conversation. Yeah, my, my, my friend, Tom Swick, who's a great travel writer, wrote a book called The Joys of Travel, which I can recommend to, to you guys and to all the listeners. And one of Tom's, Tom identified seven main joys of travel. And one of those, I think it was the very first one in his book is anticipation. And Tom is a, is a, is a reader like me, he's a bibliophile. And he, um, the thing that he loves about the anticipation of a trip is it helps direct his reading. Like me, Tom is a compulsive book buyer. So his house is filled with books. And how do you decide what book you're going to read next? Well, you can decide based upon what country you're going to mm-hmm. next. So what Tom does and what I like to do also too, is so when you know which place you're going to next, you can start reading fiction and nonfiction from that country a year or six months before you go. 
So anticipation is definitely, you know, something that's on here. The other thing I wanted to say too, is that about maps and also wetting your appetite and, and anticipation is um, the two, two of the travel clubs that I mentioned, Nomad Mania and Most Traveled People. Mm -hmm. um, if you are really an extreme traveler and you love travel, or even you're not an extreme traveler, but you want to start sort of compiling and organizing your travels, I highly, they're both free. I, I highly recommend that you go on those websites and become members and you, you, you log all the places that you visited and it shows you, you know, sort of your progress in, in, in visiting the world. And it shows you sort of a map too, and it colors in the areas you've been to. And that is very humbling for, for most people, um, unless you are a really, you know, extreme, extreme compulsive traveler. When you see your travel map on those websites, it's very humbling because you realize your place in the world and your tracks are, are quite modest. Mm -hmm. At least in my case, they are. In many people's yeah. cases, they are. Now, Very much I know so. Elliot's going to do that immediately because he's a stats guy. He's, he I, needs to know where he ranks. <laughs> so I do like stats, but I, I'll be honest. This is the first time on the podcast in nearly 200 episodes that we've actually even heard of these websites. I have never heard yeah. of them. And I think that kind of goes to show what our, our podcast really focuses on is the, is the joys and the, the mental aspects of travel. And usually it's not in relation to stacking up against other people, but what <laughs> the individual gets out of it. Um, so I think this is, this is very interesting to me because I think in the, we've mentioned this in passing on the podcast many times, but the, the checklist traveler is is very different and i think it may not be as healthy as someone who is going with more purpose in their travels mm -hmm. so yeah I, i'll tell you about that a little bit because what i the term that i came up with to describe um some of these individuals you called them checklist travelers i call them country collectors mm -hmm. and i don't and, and i'm not using that term in a derogatory way because as i said in the book that i consider myself to be a country collector as well um, my opinion though, about country collecting and country collectors changed 180 degrees during the research of my book, because I assumed what you just said is that mm -hmm. people who are, who are systematic, who are traveling systematically, some of them prefer the term systematic travelers or systematic travel. My opinion towards them was that these are people who are just going places just in order to say that they've been there and that they're going there quickly. They're not seeing anything. They're not learning about the place. And it's a, like sort of an ego thing to say, oh, I'm ranked number whatever. That was my impression of these people before I actually knew any of them. And then as I got to know these guys and actually travel with them too, I went with a group of these guys after the book came out last year. I had a chance. They invited me on a trip with them to Nagorno-Karabakh in Azerbaijan. And uh, so I traveled with these guys in September too and had a chance to really get to know them even better. And I realized that I was actually being a little too judgmental and that, you know, you can't really generalize about any sort of travelers. And what I found about these people are, is that the clubs actually are a way for them to organize their travels and to put places on their radar screens that ordinarily otherwise wouldn't have been there. Hence some of these places that I've mentioned to you, which I, I, I'm guessing you may have never heard of Marion Island or Bouvet Island or these different places. I sure hadn't before I, <laughs> before I started meeting these guys, I hadn't heard of, I thought I was a geography wizard until I met, started meeting these people. And then I realized, wow, I don't know so many of the places these guys are aspiring to go to. And it, that was very humbling for me because I thought I was like an A student in geography. And I think that what is very logical about the way that they travel is, is that it, 
it expands the globe. It expands the map. And what mm -hmm. the very first time I met one of the world's best travelers, his name is Don Barish. He asked me a question that I had no way to answer. Really, he asked me, "How do you decide where to go?" He said, "You like to travel. How, Dave? Where do you? How do you decide where you want to go?" And I said, "Well, what do you mean? I just like places that I want to visit. Just whatever, wherever I want to go." And he said, "Yeah, but how do you make that decision? How do you decide each year where you decide to go?" And I, I, I didn't have a very clear answer. And he said, "Well, what you're doing is." You're just cherry picking the world's best destinations, aren't you? And I thought, huh, I didn't really have a way of answering that because I said, well, I guess you're right. I guess I am cherry picking places. And he said, well, why is it? Why? Why should someone just take the same trip to Italy or Greece or England or a handful of countries, handful of the world's most popular countries? People just visit those places over and over and over again. And he gave examples of people that he knows who have been outside the country a hundred times, but all of those 100 trips were to a handful of countries in Western Europe. Mm -hmm. And he said, what he likes about the clubs is they sort of force you to just stop going to the same old greatest hits places where it's like, you know, now I'm going to go to a different Greek island this year because last year I went to Mykonos, this year I'm going to Santorini. And so, and I thought, well, that's kind of true, isn't it? Because for example, I mean, like, some of these people, like the people who I went to Azerbaijan with, I was talking to them about, okay, so where did you go last? One of the women who was sharing a, you know, a bus, you know, ride with me on one of these mini bus things was like, oh, I was just in Suriname. Okay, Suriname. None of my friends would ever go to Suriname. You know no. what I mean? <laughs> so it's sort of like, if you don't travel systematically, then you're going to the Frances and the Germanys and the Australias of the world. But once you decide to try to see the world in a systematic way, all of a sudden, all of these unheralded places that nobody else goes to are on your radar screen. And I think especially in an era of over-tourism, where the world's most popular places are getting too crowded, I think, you know what, if there's a small group of people who want to go to Suriname and Timbuktu and wherever else, great, because we yeah, need yeah. to spread out. We need <laughs> to spread out, you know? Yep. So I actually feel totally different about the country collectors now, because I think, you know what, you guys are going to every country in Africa. You're going to different, you're going to poor places. You're going to dangerous places. You're going to places that are off limits. More power to you. Mm -hmm. God bless. We had uh, a while ago now a, an entire episode with a, a panel devoted to is social media killing travel. And part of that conversation actually discussed how people are influenced to go to certain places. And we discussed that that exact subject of, you know, most people are on Instagram um, and it's I think travel is very photo oriented. So people are seeing the, the pictures, the really cool pictures of, you know, the mirror lake in Bolivia or going to the Eiffel Tower and getting that sh yeah. that photo. But I so you have you have swayed me on the checklist or the country collector, because I think this is a fantastic way to learn about your next destination. And oftentimes I think Bob and I have realized that our trips that we've planned over the last several years now have been because of our the influence from our podcast guests. So that's how we find, I mean, that's awesome. Everybody, everybody who travels gets their idea to travel somewhere from someone else or something yeah. else. It's not just right. a spontaneous, oh, I'm going to go to, uh, uh, what was the wordle the other day? Uh, like Svalbard. And, Svalbard. Yeah. All these people have been to Svalbard. Svalbard's yeah. one of their Svalbard is one of their top destinations. They've all been there. 
Uh, yeah, so like I learned that was its own like territory nation this week. Right. And so, yeah, I'll tell you, I'm glad you mentioned social media and the influence of social media on travel. Here's what I think you guys might find super fascinating about these world's most traveled people. Not a single one of them has a significant social media following. Not one of them. And I, I find this fascinating because you can find, and I don't want to generalize, but there, listen, there's some travel influencers who I think are super smart and put out great content and they're wonderful and I love those people. There's other travel influencers who I look at them and I'm like, this person has a million followers and they have nothing but utter complete banalities to say about travel. Nothing interesting. They're going to nowhere interesting and yet they've got a million followers and I have no idea why. And yet here are these people who have, they've got YouTube channels, they've got, you know, as I do, they've got, you know, Instagram channels, but they don't have a lot of followers. And it's, I don't know why, but I think part of the reason is because they're not going to destinations that people are searching for and that people care about. And so people want to, people want to follow people who are going to famous destinations and who are going to places that they can replicate. People are not as interested in Bouvet Island and Marion Island no. because because they can't go on Expedia and book a trip there. Yeah, well, yeah, it, no, it's I the same I... thing. Uh, if you have if you have a bunch of people that are all walking in the same direction, and you you know that you should be going in the other direction, but you just feel that like I don't want to go against what everyone else is doing, and so there is that that group mentality of well, if everyone else isn't doing it, then I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And I think it's really hard. Well, one, I think if you are a traveler and you're dedicated to travel, then you're not going to be dedicated to your social media sites. And you just you, you can't build a, a humongous social media platform if you're really passionate about travel. It, those people are it, it's social media first, travel second. Uh, and and I don't and these profound travel experiences just don't translate to Instagram. Instagram is the glitzy and the glam and the you know cool shot of the Eiffel Tower at sunset. Um, no one's going to read a nice, nice lengthy post about the culture and the experience that you had. So that's right. why I would probably say that it doesn't translate well. Um, and I'm I'm convinced also too, and maybe that maybe it's just me because I have only not a lot of followers, but I'm 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 satisfied with the followers that I have because I think they're quality ones. I haven't purchased them, but I think that you also it also really helps to be very good looking. And, uh, you know, especially, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're attractive, let's face it, you're going to have more followers than if you, you know, if you're like a 49 year old man, you know, like me, you're just, you're just, you're just, you're just going to have to really earn your followers. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Maybe that's why we don't have as many followers, Bob. Right. Yeah. I think, I mean, yeah, we need longer hair and uh, breast implants. Yeah. And, uh, Absolutely. That's, that helps. Yeah, that helps. Right. That helps. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. Um, well, luckily, that's not really what what matters, at least not for the people who actually are doing it and the people who care about travel and want to learn about these countries. Yeah, and the people listening to this podcast right now are listening to it because they want to learn. I mean, we are not a standard go here, do this podcast. We right. are we are learn about this thing. Maybe you'll go here. Maybe we'll inspire you to do something different. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Dave, before we, before we start to wrap up though, I do, I know you wrote several other books. Unfortunately, we, we don't have time to go over them right now. Um, but I do, we, we could probably do it another time, but briefly, yeah. what, what are they? Um, and, and while you're at it, just tell everybody where, 
they can find all of your books, where they can purchase your books, where's your social media handles. We'll try to get you a few more followers. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you guys. <laughs> so yeah, let's, let's um, just very quickly, you know, my name is Dave Seminara. My website is daveseminara.com. It's spelled like the word, like a seminar, but with an A at the end. So it's daveseminara.com. And um, I have written four, four books. They're all travel related. So Mad Travelers, you know about, that's what we've been talking about. Very briefly, the other ones are my previous one uh, prior to that was I traveled in the footsteps of Roger Federer across Switzerland. <laughs> and cool. so just, you know, in a very brief nutshell, I've been a tennis addict my whole life and a, and a Roger Federer fan for ever since he was uh, really sort of came on the scene. But I had a, um, a very bad health problem that was basically made my life a living hell for about two years. 2018, 2019 was hell because I had this autoimmune disease. I still do, mm-hmm. but it's under control. I could not play tennis for a couple of years. And it was two years of intense suffering. And when I started to finally get better, I thought, well, you know what? I'm almost getting back to tennis, but I don't want to just come back to tennis in a normal way, just on my neighborhood courts. I owe it to myself. I thought, you know what? I deserve a treat. I'm going to travel addict. I'm going to make a trip out of this. So I said, you know what? I want to go to Switzerland and I want to play on courts where Roger Federer has played. And I thought, well, here's a, here's a grandiose idea, right? I'm going to make my tennis come back on hallowed ground, Roger Federer courts, right? But I thought this is going to be extravagantly expensive. So I need to write at least an article about this. So I pitched pitched the New York Times travel section. They said, okay, we'll let you do that. And they were going to pay for part of it. So I said, we're off. Here we go. So I went to to Switzerland. I I did the trip and I had uh, like hundreds of pages of notes. And all they wanted was like a 2,600 word story, which is not nearly enough. So I wrote a whole book about it. And um, if you like tennis, it's a very irreverent, trip in Roger Federer's footsteps. So it's not, this is not about like, you know, not about the specifics of tennis matches and stuff like that. It's really a travel book at heart. You'll learn about Roger Federer, but you'll also learn a lot about Switzerland. The other two books that I have are collections of travel stories. And they both have the word breakfast in the title because breakfast is my favorite meal of the day. The first book is called Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats, Dispatches from the Margins of Europe. And the other book is called Breakfast with Polygamous, Dispatches from the <laughs> Margins of the Americas. So the first book is all about their tra- a collection of travel stories from unusual corners of Europe. That's bed, breakfast, and drunken threats. And Breakfast with Polygamous is all about travels from all over the Americas, unusual forgotten corners of the Americas. And they're, they're collections of travel stories. That's awesome. very interesting. Very. Dave, I, I could listen to you talk all day. I don't know if you've had this idea come out yet, but I, you, you could start a podcast. You could start a travel podcast on your own, I think. And whether you interviewed adventurers or just broke down stories and just offered your own perspective on travel stories, I would listen to you. I, I think it would, I, I would be. You know, I would love to. I would love to. I've been trying to find the time to do that. Yeah. Uh, also, I'm sorry too. You also gave me an opportunity to mention my my uh, my travel social medias. I yeah, am on, yeah. I have a YouTube channel which I think is really a lot of fun. I really document my travels on YouTube pretty extensively. And the travel it's called Mad Traveler. So you'll find me as Mad Traveler on YouTube and on um, Instagram on Mad Traveler Dave because somebody else already <laughs> had Mad Traveler. So yeah. Mad Traveler Dave on Instagram and Mad Traveler on YouTube. So definitely check me out. Yeah. And, and the links to everything will be in our show notes for the podcast. So if you're listening to this, just go back and click on the show notes. You'll be able to find everything. All right. All right. Well, Dave, we didn't tell you this, but we have a rapid fire question round. Okay. Right. 
Five yep. questions. Just whatever comes off the top of your head at that time. It doesn't have to be short, but it should be rapid. Bob, you want to get started? Sure. Dave, what is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word travel? Indulgence. All right. What travel book had the biggest influence on your life? The Great Railway Bazaar by Paul Theroux. Okay. I gotta write that one down. Yep. <laughs> All right, Bob, that's you. We have radio silence right now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, describe your perfect travel experience. Uh, being on a, a train, preferably a quality train, um, where uh, the kind of chain where the windows uh, go down and I can get a breeze coming through the carriage and it's quiet enough that I could read a book and I don't care where, where I'm going. That was beautifully specific. I like yeah, it. I, you, could, you could be there. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us one thing travelers should not do. Hmm. Break the law. That's a good one. And that's actually a first. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I it think is. Of that. No one has said that yet. Yeah. And then I think I that know. applies to non-travelers as well. <laughs> right. Just good <laughs> life advice. <laughs> and uh, the last question, uh, what is one piece of advice you'd give to yourself 10 years ago? Oh, 10 years ago, uh, get a real job. <laughs> I don't know if that's I good don't, advice. I don't yeah. think you would follow that advice. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Right. I, I wouldn't have followed that advice. <laughs> and Dave, that's why, and that's why we're talking to you. Yeah. And thank you for your time this evening. Thank uh, you guys. Thank you very really, much. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you guys. So I, I mentioned it in the intro. I have his book. I cannot wait to read this. I am not a big fiction reader, but I do every so often like a good story. And so I've tried to read stories like The Great Gatsby, but there's just something about them that, uh, you know, it just doesn't take. And I don't know why, but it just doesn't. So I kind of moved on and I don't really try to read those stories as much anymore. I try to find real life experiences. And the good thing about being into travel is that there's a lot of travel adventure stories out there. I, I didn't have this one on my radar, but I'm pumped. I can't <laughs> wait. Like, I, I, and I'm just, I really, I, I'm so excited to read this book. It's so interesting. Like, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of fiction either. I prefer to read nonfiction. And this is a book that I don't think you could like make into fiction. And I would say it, it's stranger than fiction. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so it gives me, uh, what was the movie with Leonardo Di DiCaprio? Catch me if you can vibes. Yeah. Yeah. It gives me, so. right. So it's like, it's like even Walter the new... Mitty meets <laughs> Catch yeah. Me If You Can, which are two like, of my it, favorite movies. Like Walter Mitty, Catch Me If You Can, Anna Sorokin in the... The new Netflix thing that's on right now, how she conned yes. all those rich New Yorkers. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't watch that. I don't plan on it, but I do understand. I do know what it, what yeah. I've heard. Yeah. yeah, there's actually this is a little bit of a tangent, but there's a show called Generation Hustle on on HBO, and so every episode is about a con in some way, and she think, was the focus of one of those episodes. And I think William Bakeland was as well. Was he? Yeah, I think so. Wow, I didn't. So I didn't finish it. I watch them like when I'm looking for something to do. The show is fascinating, fascinating, and every episode is a brand new story about this con. But they're all related to technology in some way. They're they're conning people through Instagram or whatever. So it's really good if you have HBO. It's called Generation Hustle. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy that, it. The Bakeland episode aired April twenty second, twenty twenty one. 
Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm only, I only watch like the first three or four and it's not something I put on often, but when I remember, I, I throw it on and I watch another one. So, all right. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. We appreciate you as a listener. Um, if you would like to help us out in some way by simply sharing it on social media, liking, commenting, rating, giving us a review that significantly increases the growth of the show. The if algorithm. The algorithm, oh, please, the almighty algorithm. But if you want to Love contribute it. in a financial way, there's a link where you can buy us a coffee. So for as little as $1, uh, it, it, it goes towards the show, it goes towards the work that we put into it, and we we could not say thank you enough if you were to, down, to donate in that way. Uh, regardless, thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and tune in next week.